Hello, I'm David Moscroft. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. The internet was once imagined as a free and open communications utopia. Like all utopias, however, it was not to be. But the spirit of an unbound and accessible internet lives on, as does the question, can we fix the internet? Answering this requires us to tackle questions about data, privacy, access, and the struggle between, or sometimes intersection of, corporate interests, user interests, and the public interest. Today, my guest is Laura Tribe, Executive Director of Open Media. We'll discuss the good, the bad, the ugly, and the possible of the present and future of the internet. And let's start here with some sweeping generalizations. What's good and what's bad about the structure of the internet today? Big questions. Yeah, sweeping generalizations. So you can be, you can, you can be sweeping. I can be sweeping. Uh, what's good about the internet is that it's connecting people. Uh, we're using it all the time for pretty much everything, and it's become an intrinsic part of our lives. And so obviously there's something there that people want. Uh, it's making people more accessible. It's making information more accessible. All of our services are more convenient uh, and bringing a lot of opportunity to people that way. Uh, what's bad about the internet? Not everyone has it, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is something that is often overlooked in Canada. And of those that do have it, not everyone can afford it. But even when you're looking within sort of the structure and use of the internet itself, the original vision of the internet was this really big, open, uh, sort of lawless state that was very decentralized. And what we see right now is a very centralized internet where a handful of companies control the majority of our data, our access points, and the services that we use, uh, which is really what, when we turned to the internet in the first place, we were trying to get away from. So there's some sweeping good and bad. And extraordinarily uh, well summarized. I mean, I, I have noticed... We'll get into the corporate oligopoly stuff and, and the the surveillance state and all that exciting stuff in a minute. We'll get into the substantive stuff in a minute. First, I want to say it has become remarkably irritating to browse the internet because you can't go three clicks in without being bombarded with crap that you've got to close, click to close, or things that you got to click on to ascend to. You know, it seems to me that our, our attempt to try to rein it in has made the experience of using it worse because now you're, you know, do you want the cookies? Yes. Um, do you want to sign up for our email service? Whatever it is. Yes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, so we've gone from this sort of utopia to it's like walking through a shopping mall with a bunch of people sticking their products in your face and someone stopping you at every store asking you to consent to their terms of service before you enter. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> well, first of all, let's not forget the pop-up era where everything sure. was a pop-up ad. So we've been clicking our way past other screens to get to the internet for a while. And there was a nice little period in the middle where we managed to end pop-up blockers before all of the cookies notifications came right. up. <laughs> uh, that maybe was the golden era of the internet to many. Uh, I think when we're looking at all of the sort of cookies, notifications, the email opt-ins, it's the nature of the fact that Everyone's trying to get our eyeballs and our attention. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's that from the advertising side of things. But a lot of it comes from privacy regulation right. and actually trying to make sure people know what's happening. Because for so long, people were maybe blissfully but unaware of the information that was being collected about them, how they were being tracked on the Internet, and if they had anything they could do about it. And so over the past year in particular, there's an onslaught of cookies notifications that everyone is seeing, uh, as well as do you want notifications from this website? Can you tell them your geography and location? All of those that are 
very frustrating when you're just trying to get to a site, figure out what time the event is, whatever that might be. Um, but they come from a good place. Right. And they're really coming from trying to make sure people know what's happening with their data, with their browsing, uh, to the point that I think people have started ignoring it and just right. clicking past it to actually get to where they're going this to. This is like the terms of service. Exactly. We've become numb to the terms of service. I mean, I can't, it's I've never met game. someone who's who's read the terms of service. I mean, for, for their own purposes. I, I suspect I've read you a have. terms of service. Yeah. I've read many of them, but you, you can't. There's studies done, uh, and there were a few that came out a few years ago, of how many years of your life you would commit if you just read the terms of service on all of the apps that come on your phone and all of those things, in the beginning, right. you just can't. There's not enough time in your life to read all the terms of services for the products that you're using. So ahead of this episode, I counted my apps. I'd recently gone through and, and cleansed my phone of as many as possible because I got sick of the updates. I didn't want. To. I have about a hundred apps on my phone. Um, presumably, they most of them have terms of service. They all will have terms of service. Right. Yeah. So so. You know, on average, we could imagine, what, two or three hours each? Something like that? Depending on how long they are, you could do five minutes or you could do three hours. Yeah. Really? Okay, so so now we're talking, even just to get through your phone, uh, you would uh, be looking at hundreds of hours. Yeah. Instance, you know, weeks. Yeah. Okay, so we've established that. How does Canada stack up? Oh, so they're coming from a good place. We want to protect privacy, obviously. We want people to know what they're doing, obviously. We want informed consent, although we could debate whether or not we have that. Uh, how does Canada stack up compared to other jurisdictions when it comes to data privacy and protection? How well are we actually doing? Compared to especially the United States and Europe, because you know how Canadians are. Those we compare are the we could, yeah. to the United States and Europe, yeah. yeah. Uh, we sit somewhere in the middle. Uh, so when you look classic, at all those... Classic. Classic Classic Canada. Yeah. Uh, when you look at all of those cookies, notifications, pop-ups, a lot of those are being driven by legislation in Europe. So Europe passed the GDPR... Uh, which went into effect last year, I believe, although I've lost track of time. This and is the, so I, I know I, I get feedback that we're meant to explain these things. Uh, the, the General Data Protection Regulation, which uh, if you had to give us the, the big two or three takeaways from that. Uh, so the big takeaways from the GDPR in Europe are that um, consent is required. So it really puts a lot of uh, power into the user over what data is collected, that they can get it back, they can ask you to delete it, um, that everyone needs to, basically know what they're signing up for. So it's not just consent as in checking box saying, yes, this is the case, but your terms of service, your privacy policy needs to be really clear so people understand it. Um, and the, the third one, which is actually the, the biggest one, is really what differentiates Europe from Canada and the United States is there are huge financial penalties for mistreating users' data. So the GDPR applies to all Europeans, whether they are in Europe or not. And so that's where you've seen mm. the ripple effect where American news sites are doing it. Because if you're European in the States, they could theoretically be caught up in this law. And So it's tied to citizenship? It's tied to citizenship. Within geographical Europe? Yes. So within, within the, the EU European companies, Union. yeah. yeah. Right, right. So if you are the a European, EU companies, there you go. I actually am not sure if it's a citizen <laughs> or a resident. I'd have to double check that. But if you are a member of the European Union uh, and you live within the European Union, you are entitled to those protections. And so that's where we've seen things like news outlets in the North America putting those protections on. Um, in addition to if you're accessing those sites from within Europe. That needs to be the case. It's like the Roman Empire. <laughs> you know, your citizenship follows you around and grants you protections. Imagine yeah. that. So the biggest thing within the GDPR and the European protections, though, is that there are really big financial penalties. So it's scary if you violate the really strict rules because there are huge financial penalties. It's a percent of earnings? It's a percent of your earnings or a minimum, I think, of 
for $25 million. And then the millions right. is the minimum. Yeah. Um, and if your earnings are larger than that, it will be a percentage of your earnings. So if you're someone like Google or Facebook, a couple million dollars is nothing. And so they would go for, I think it's 4% of your gross income or revenues. So uh, let's, all right, I want to take a little off track, then I want to come back to how Canada stacks up. But first I want to talk about uh, whether or not this becomes anti-competitive. You know, I, I remember doing some work on this and someone saying to me, big firms like Facebook and Google and Twitter often like regulations because they become barriers to entry for smaller participants. I mean, yeah. has GDPR had that effect? Um, I don't think the GDPR has completely had that effect in the same way. Um, although it's really difficult for smaller, um, and it's not just companies, so nonprofits, right. political, everyone. Because they need everyone. to have a compliance officer. and, and You have to know right. exactly who's monitoring it. There are data processing pieces that have to go into place uh, that will be a burden on every organization. Uh, some of the other regulation Europe's been considering around things like um, copyright protections are actually far more cumbersome that would actually prevent smaller companies from entering the market. So they are ones that uh, if you're looking at things like they were proposing and, and passed uh, a link tax, which would essentially require any outlet. So Google News, as an example, uh, who's posting any snippets of content. So the title of an article, the little previews that we see in Facebook, uh, you'd have to pay the original source for that content. Um, to link to the Just article. to be able to show the preview of the content people are linking through to. So all the things we like about the internet now that is not that old school blue list of URLs yeah. um, would actually cost a lot of money to pay through. And the only companies that can afford to do that and put that into place are the big ones. We're looking at things around censorship uh, machines or upload filters where any content that is posted by a user to a platform, the platform would be responsible for it. If it's a copyright violation. Turning them into publishers, effectively? Yeah. And so if all of a sudden these platforms are now responsible for all of the content that goes up potentially being a copyright violation, the only option they have is to pre-filter all the content before it's ever posted to make sure that it is not a copyright violation. And who has the ability to build those kinds yeah. of filters? You're basically looking at YouTube, who has the most... Yeah. prolific of those filters and still gets it wrong. And then we turn the companies into censors. Exactly. So there's the policy around how it actually will work for free expression online, the type of content, but to your question around who it helps, it actually makes it a lot harder for smaller companies to enter the market when you have these really mm -hmm. extensive technical specs people have to meet that not even some of the largest corporations can get right. So you're really looking at a handful of them being able to survive. Okay, and so how does Canada stack up? So we've got a comparison now that we've looked into GDPR a bit. Uh, Canada's in between the U.S. and Europe, as we like to be. Uh, Canada to the left, Canada to the right. Uh, how do we stack up? And, and how do we stack up in light of perhaps the, the Canada's digital charter, which I'll define as a running joke, and perhaps <laughs> you can define it otherwise. But I... So compared to Europe, Canada's actually not that far off. Um, compared to the U.S., we are doing a lot better. Uh, the U.S. has basically left privacy and data protections to the companies to decide what's <laughs> yeah, best, sure. and that's not gone very well. And if you want to go even further, looking at the surveillance state in the United States, it's one of the most established Why in the wouldn't world. you let the fox run the hen house? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? So when you look at Canada's privacy legislation specifically, we're very close to Europe. Mm -hmm. The main difference uh, is actually just the enforcement powers. So our laws are very good. We have very strong protections for our data. The the difference is there are huge financial penalties in Europe if you violate those laws. And in Canada, if you violate those laws, you will be investigated by the privacy commissioner. And essentially, they have to negotiate 
an agreement with you at the end. The only way that the privacy commissioner can currently uh, put financial penalties on or have any concrete accountability measures for anything that you've done wrong is they have to take you to court. They can't just really? issue them themselves. And so not only is that a really cumbersome process for the privacy commissioner to have to launch a court not a particularly well-staffed no. body either, uh, right? But additionally, there's no way when you look at a company like Facebook that they're going to get a court settlement or that process that's going to cost more than the penalties they've seen in Europe or even in the case of the states, they had a $5 billion settlement through the FTC. Mm-hmm. In Canada, they're not worried about us. And so our privacy laws, although they're very robust, are not very threatening. And so that's the simple change that needs to be made uh, that will have a really big impact around who can be held accountable in Canada. Uh, the laws are good, but we can't really hold people to them, and therefore they don't mean a lot. So, I mean, I, reading through the digital charter, it's ambitious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, as a document, it's it's impressive in many ways and ambitious. It is about protecting di- uh, data. It's a privacy. It's about upholding democracy. It's about keeping companies accountable. But you're saying that as as glamorous as it may seem, you know, behind it, it's actually quite toothless. So the digital charter sounds great. It has 10 principles for what, you know, the future of digital is going to look like in Canada. There are questions around the process that came to build it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as much as I hate this sentence, the devil really is in the details of how it's implemented. So when you look at something like privacy, it's in there. Things like user consent are in there. But When you look a little bit deeper into what they're looking at for their privacy reforms, when they're looking at consent, it means that you should know what data you're giving away and you should know what they're doing with it. There is nothing in there that indicates that you should be able to take it back or say no. Yeah, right. And so it's very centered around, and the way the process was run is very centered around what businesses need. It was a process that was led by Innovation Science and Economic Development, or formerly industry. It was kicked off with a consultation with a big round table and a big production of all these businesses asked what they think. And throughout the consultation process, civil society and public interest groups were never really brought to the table, despite asking and being told we would be given the same round table equivalents. And that has shaped the end result. So things that are great in it, universal access to the internet, cross-partisan support, no question. Yeah. We need the internet in Canada. As a positive right? Yes. And it's incumbent on the government to then therefore enable that? Coverage in the North, for instance? That would be great. Uh, we've seen I'm the government say that that should happen. I'm going to call uh, But that. I think that there's a lot of talk about what needs to happen and not a lot of clarity around who's going to do it. We're going to ask the telcos to go put some decent internet? That's been our plan for years and our philosophy. We will um, be living underwater by the time that happens, I imagine. There are some plans on the table, and we can can skip to the connectivity part if you want, but uh, there are some plans on the table around that that I think are feasible and reasonable. Uh, But I think that... Industry it, plans or government plans? Uh, government plans government. around that that would help and things that could be refined to make it more accurate. But when you look at the digital charter as a whole, there's a smart cities proclamation in there God of one of the things all. they're talking about working on already. And, you know, there's nothing in there that really says, do we want smart cities? Right. It's assuming that we need these things and here's how we're going to move forward without actually asking why do we want them and what are the criteria to make sure that they're meeting the needs of the residents as opposed to the needs of the government or the people and companies that are behind them. And so there's a lot of pieces in that digital charter that sound very aspirational, but it's it's not a charter. 
Yeah, right. It's not the same as the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It doesn't give us the same guaranteed protections. It's aspirational. And within that, because it's not actually a legal framework, it's really just a guiding principle for policy decisions mm -hmm. and how those are going to be made. And so all of the implementation of that charter is still dependent on who's making the decisions and who they're trying to appease when they do that. And so that's how they will use the charter to interpret future policy or build future policy as opposed to saying this is law. Right. So I, I mean, so I think normatively, to get back a bit to the question of the of the episode, can we fix the internet? Uh, normatively, I think we agree on probably almost everything. So yeah, as a debate show, this is the problem is I keep agreeing with people. But in, in a real twist, I, I think uh, we'll disagree on the on the question whether we can. I, I don't think we can. Uh, I suspect we'll continue down this path of corporate oligopoly and users being bombarded because the internet is advertising driven. And you get a handful of oligopolistic companies who basically create a surveillance state dystopia to try to earn a couple of bucks off you day to day. And a government that's too toothless and too separated from other governments around the world to be able to come together to do something about it because these companies are now too big to push around, with the exception of maybe China, who have their own huge surveillance state problem, obviously. And and that'll be that. And you'll have, you know, the resistance fighters. It looks a little bit like Star Wars because you'll have the rebels, the dark web folks, anonymous, and those who want to use Tor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the pirates. Uh, but, the, but the regular day-to-day -day user will be caught in this corporate um, internet surveillance dystopia. So... <laughs> um, so you don't think we can fix the internet? No, I don't think so because I think I, I don't think so because I think um, the internet is a product now, at least, of capitalism. I think the problem is capitalism, and and uh, you know, a global there's a broader global problem that is states disagree and it's hard to corral states, and the internet goes across borders. But I think fundamentally the problem is capitalism, and I don't think. Um, we can fix the internet without fixing capitalism, and I don't see us fixing capitalism anytime soon. So that's where I'm coming from. But I'm curious if you had to be optimistic about you know, making the internet great again, uh, what would that optimism look like? I refuse to use the make the internet great again. I'm trying to reclaim it. I'm trying to take it back. <laughs> uh, I don't think all is lost, and that's partially the nature of my job. I'm an activist yeah. working to make the internet great, uh, protect the things that are great about it. But I also have seen changes that show that that's possible. I don't think that all is lost. I don't think that we should give up. And I think that if you do give up, you've guaranteed that you've lost. Sure. Yeah. And so fundamentally looking at where we're headed on the internet, there are in Canada so many pieces of legislation and policy coming up that will shape what it looks like that could go good or could go bad or could go well or could go bad. And it's kind of up to us to decide which way we want it to go and what we want it to look like. You have a, minor a minority government that is very susceptible to public pressure uh, and pressure from all parties, but also you have the Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review, which is looking at all of our communications policy in Canada and how do we change the laws. You have a government that has already said that universal connectivity is an objective and making sure that every single person has access and I think understands that they cannot just wait and say this is the case and hope companies do it. But what, they have what to does that mean? In. What is that? So when you when you say access, are we talking about affordable 
fast broadband access. Yeah, high-speed broadband access, yeah. no matter where you live in Canada. Um, I think the affordable part is the second piece. Right. Because uh, to me, access means it, you not only have the opportunity to theoretically sign up, but you have the means to actually sign up. You can actually right. follow you know, through and do if it. It's, if it's $90 a month yeah. and you, you know, you're making a minimum wage, you probably don't have access. Yeah. And I think when you're looking at the North right now, there are people who are on satellite connections that are paying three, four times what we're paying in Ottawa right now for significantly less connectivity. And there are the connectivity issues of does the infrastructure actually exist? And then there's the piece around can you actually afford to get online? They're both problems. Mm. And they have related but separate solutions. One is you actually just need to build the connections. And two is you need the competition to actually make sure there are multiple providers working to provide that service because we've seen very handily for decades in Canada what happens when there is not competition and it's that we pay some of the highest prices in the world. Yeah. And when we Tell look me about <laughs> it. I got a notice the other day uh, that um, I guess the CRTC requires them to send you a notice when you've gone $50 over your data. Yep. I got that notice for the first time the other day. Did you get the notice before you hit your data cap? No, first? just, yes, just before. Yeah. And it slowed down and it went to 3G. And uh, usually my, my bill is fairly reasonable. Um, but I had this moment of thinking, only in Canada. Yeah, it's true. But do we trust these companies to build that infrastructure? Because when we're talking about building the infrastructure, we're talking about private entities building this infrastructure. I mean, in theory, private entities building this infrastructure. We, yeah. we leave it to the telcos to do it instead of the nationalizing and letting the government do it. So it's been a policy decision in the past to leave it to market forces. Um, 2006, Maxime Bernier was the Minister of Industry, put a policy direction into him? place. <laughs> we can do that later. Uh, he put a policy direction into place for the CRTC that regulates all of our telecom that says, leave it to market forces. Mm. Uh, and really what that meant was that in all decisions the CRTC was making, when it had a decision to make, it was expected to err on the side of not intervening. And that might work when you already have a fair level playing field for all companies, but when you have companies that have been protected monopolies for, for almost a century in some cases, they're used to getting their way. They are bigger than everyone else and they have such a head start of decades and decades of subsidies that leaving it to them means perpetuating the status quo. So it is very possible for the government to change that, for the CRTC to change that. The Liberal government put a new policy direction in place for the CRTC earlier this year that included things like affordability, putting customers as part of the equation for what decisions look like, helping small providers, all of those pieces, which is really great for bringing that competition in. But when it comes to actually building the infrastructure, someone has to do it. Yeah. And so historically, what the government has done, and this is not just the Liberals, the Conservatives did it before them, is have grant applications to help subsidize build out to areas that maybe there isn't a market incentive to build to. So you're still getting the companies to do it, but you're giving them some money recognizing that they're, you know, taking a hit because it's not the most lucrative area for them. It has still gone to the same companies. Yeah. And so we've actually seen where those companies are now incentivized to not build until the government pays them to build because they know they can get funding to do it. So why would they build out when they can wait and get millions from the government to do the same project? 
that's a problem. It means that people are being held hostage until the government back, bails them out. Uh, but there are new proposals on the table as well. So there's a, a fair amount of funding from the government. Uh, there's a fair amount of funding from the CRTC as well that's been put out uh, for building that infrastructure. And what we've been pushing for at Open Media is give it to someone else. If you're going to be giving the money out, give it to the local communities who can build their own networks and build their own infrastructure and have control over it, which gives them both a potential revenue stream, uh, but also just make sure that they're not perpetuating the status quo as a larger market issue. Uh, but also there's, you know, a report coming out from the Canada Infrastructure Bank that maybe the government should build it itself and stop oh. paying the companies to do it because it's financially inefficient and it's not getting the job done. And so maybe they should just do it themselves. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to go about it that mean you don't keep throwing the same money at the same problem and expecting a different solution. Yeah, and also, I mean, this obviously intersects with Indigenous politics. I mean, when we're talking about the North, we are not exclusively, but but largely talking about Indigenous peoples. Yeah. And it's it seems to me that if you wanted to build community and power peoples, this would be an opportunity to, to do that instead of just rolling over on to the telcos, as we, as, as we always do. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me about um, every government's approach to governing this country is that it seems piecemeal. And um, to me, part of, of pulling the country together and empowering communities is thinking about these things in interrelated terms. One of those is how does telco relate to Indigenous politics? How does it relate to community building? How does it relate to um, uh, reconciliation even? Uh, and, and I think that means uh, cutting out the companies. I mean, I don't think, uh, we haven't wielded the, the nationalization sword as much as, as we should. Okay, so with that established, uh, let's move on to surveillance. Uh, one of the reasons I think that we can't fix the internet is that the surveillance apparatus is, uh, you know, government, but also the corporate surveillance apparatus is the model. I mean, this is how you make money now. You yep. surveil people. And we are willing participants. Uh, not willing in the sense that we don't have issues with it, because when you ask people, they do. But willing in the sense that when we evaluate those uh, concerns against trade-offs, we decide to carry around um, wiretaps in our pockets. You know, there's a great cartoon on the internet, someone in the 1950s uh, saying, God, I hope uh, we're not being wiretapped. And then someone now saying, hey, wiretap, give me a recipe for turkey, right? <laughs> yeah. And, so, and now we're putting speakers in our own smart speakers and so on and so forth. Um, how do we push back against surveillance capitalism when we don't seem to have any other options? All right, fix all the problems on the internet. So I still yes, think no things are are feasible and we can fix them. I I think the difference is are people willing to and in, is the government willing to? So when it comes to things like the surveillance state, there's two different threats. There's government surveillance and corporate surveillance. And then I would say there's this third piece, which is your data is just out there a lot more, which lets other malicious actors have access to it as well, uh, which is not so much part of the corporate surveillance establishment of having an Alexa in your home listening all the time. But if you're using an unsecure, insecure connection to talk to your friends or... My connections are both. Or connect your bank data, all of a sudden someone else could intercept that, right. uh, making you actually quite vulnerable 
in general. You're talking uh, about internet access points? Yes. For, yeah, okay. uh, internet access points, unencrypted communications on the internet, um, malware, all kinds of things that can be done to... Because individuals don't have the data. best security practices, right, by default. Please tell me you don't have the same password for every single thing. No, I have, have a password manager, and I, and I have quite complicated passwords that, that I, I guard everything because I'm paranoid about surveillance. I don't think it's paranoid. Yeah. I think it's realistic. Right. Uh, and I think that's part of the struggle that we have. So... Uh, at Open Media, we work on three main issues. We work on access, free expression, and privacy. When you talk about access, it's very clear. Can you afford your cell phone bill? Do you get the service quality you want? Uh, it's very concrete to people. When you talk about free expression, people can tell if websites are blocked. They can tell if they're getting malicious takedown notices for copyright infringement they may or may not have done. It's a lot easier for people to see. When you talk about privacy, until something has gone wildly wrong, it feels really theoretical. Mm -hmm. There's no consequences to be seen. And the consequences you do see are so far after the fact that it's really hard to feel in real time what's going on. And I think that's the biggest struggle is it feels like a conspiracy because you can't prove it. But we know from a data perspective what the government mass surveillance looks like. We know the policies they've just passed. We know they're getting worse. Mm -hmm. uh, they haven't undone any of the things they had in the past. We had Snowden revelations come out, and then years later, more surveillance tools are available, more cyber attack tools are available. We've increased our um, CSE's surveillance powers in recent legislation in Bill C-59 and actually gave them even more powers. This is the communication security establishment. Yeah. Right? Not a lot of people our know about version, this, right? Yes, it's our version of the NSA. Yeah, and, and I'd say the 90% of Canadians, if not more, have no idea what this is probably, right? Yeah, we, we have an FBI and a CIA and an NSA. We just give them different letters and just as many powers. They just fly more under the radar. And so when it comes to... Which I'm sure they don't mind. No, I think that's intentional. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but when we look at government surveillance, we either have to change the laws uh, or we have to make sure that our information is not vulnerable to interception. When it comes to corporate surveillance, it's kind of the same thing. And we have the additional ability to pick and choose what services we use. I think if people and as people are more privacy conscious, we're seeing an increase in services trying to provide privacy centric tools. Even Facebook recognizes that it's an issue. <laughs> and I say even Facebook. The lowest but bar. The lowest bar because we know that their entire model is on our data. And yet they are the ones defending end-to-end -end encryption on Facebook Messenger knowing that that is one of the things people really value. And if they lose people on Messenger, they lose people on Facebook. Yes. And people want to make sure they have secure communications. It's why on WhatsApp they're working on making sure they have secure end-to-end -end encryption because if they know that communications are vulnerable, people stop using it. And so we do have power when it comes to the tools that we use. Uh, and there are also technical tools. Encryption is one of the most critical things we have, not just for protecting you know, our, our sexts and all the dirty laundry we have, but our banking information. Yeah. Like encryption is thrown, a lot, a, thrown around a lot in public policy debates as though, well, what about terrorists and how do we get access to their cell phones? It's the number one thing. Terrorists and child pornography are being held up as this reason that we need to weaken the entire infrastructure of the internet. But if you want an argument for why to protect encryption, how about banking? Mm -hmm. The entire financial industry would be destroyed if all of a sudden all of our banking information is made vulnerable. And banking has been a success story. I mean, the, the, as far as I can tell, the security of banking information in Canada is quite quite stable, right? And has been for a long time, right? It's been quite strong and secure. You haven't had a ton of data breaches. Yeah. The ones that we have had, and there are data breaches already, uh, but the ones that you, we have had are 
typically around uh, passwords not being stored in safe places by those companies and not the banking industry. That would be other companies um, or internal sort of staff breaches of information where people who have their hands on the controls misuse the information they there's, have. Which there's it. very little you can do which, about that. Which, again, right? there's very little you can do. There are humans working in all of these areas and there will be human error or malice uh, in the odd case. But those are rare. Yeah. Um, the biggest things that we see are when people don't have the technology in place, that those things are violated. And we can't afford to give that up because anyone who's trying to do something malicious is the one who's going out of their way to make sure that their tracks are covered. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are the most invested in making sure that they've covered their own butts, so to speak, with technologies, encryption, different tools to not be able to be found. It's the rest of us who think we're not doing anything wrong that are the most vulnerable because we don't think we need to protect ourselves. And so that's where government and corporations both have a role to play in making sure that the tools we're using are safe, the data that's being collected is being housed safely, uh, that information is not being shared in unnecessarily um, between companies, between government departments. Uh, and that's really where there are there are very easy tools that we can use but does in this not, to rules. Does this not tend towards oligopoly then? I mean, because the the burdens of creating secure services uh, seem to be high enough that they would have an anti-competitive streak. I mean, I, I look, I'm all for this. Uh, I'm all for competition uh, because I don't trust companies, and uh, especially in this country. And yet, though, I mean, looking at GDPR, looking at um, you want high-grade encryption, you want good people working in your company, good people you can trust, et cetera, et cetera, that these uh, have a burden, that they come with a burden. And if you've got a handful of, com of established companies and these increase burdens on smaller companies, it becomes very, very hard to then compete. Uh, and so then you, you sort of tend towards oligopoly because no one, you know, no one else can afford to do it. The, the the more stringent the requirements are. I mean, I don't think there's, and hence why I don't think I think the problem is so fundamental and so tied up with the market as as such that you can't really fix it without fixing the market. The best security tools we have seen come out uh, have typically come from the open source community and people doing ah, it okay. uh, of their own goodwill and interest. And so I think that's one of the highlights of the internet as we imagined it still being real. Uh, the most secure technologies are typically the ones that are open source because they are audited so regularly by people trying to break them that they are fixed much faster. Really? Whereas when you see a lot of the It's crowdsourced, effectively. It is. It's a crowdsourced security protocol. Huh. So if you look at a tool like Signal, uh, which is a messaging app, you know, first made famous by Edward Snowden yeah. recommending it. Uh, I use it. That Yeah, I use it all the time. It's great. But that encryption technology itself was actually what was adopted to make the backbone of WhatsApp's encrypted technology. WhatsApp uh, just lifted it because it was open source? Uh, it was provided. They worked with them to actually oh, put it no into way. place. Okay. And so you take something that is audited so regularly to make sure that it's safe, that I trust that more than a company who tells me something's safe. And I have no way to know if that's true yeah. until I find out something's gone wrong. And so there is a lot of goodwill still left on the internet for these things, but there are also tools that are being made available that companies can use, smaller companies can use, that's not anti-competitive necessarily in the same way that you would see with sort of content lockdown and those kinds of things. Uh, because the tools themselves can be made available. You, you mentioned Tor earlier, which is one of the most secure ways to browse the internet without leaving a footprint. And that's that's a 
nonprofit project. Yeah. That's not something that a corporation is selling. That's actually something that has been made available by activists who are worried about the fact that they can be tracked online mm-hmm. and is very much a project that is nonprofit and supported by people who want to volunteer their time. So I think there's a lot of possibility but not, but there. But not, still. Uh, so I mean, for instance, I, I don't use Tor because, um, you know, it's slower. It's it's a little more difficult to use. Yeah. It doesn't play as well with devices as obviously. Uh, and hence, we get back to the market problem is that when you, in, in some cases, when you do have these tools, like a secure internet browser, um, the corporate giants have no interest in facilitating that because they've got their own browser. They don't want to, you know, so on and so forth. So you sort of default. And, and this is what concerns me is that when in doubt, people will choose the familiar and they will choose the path of least resistance, yeah. the default, right? It's why we want, for instance, privacy by default instead yeah. of not. Um, so, you know, how do we then, in service of fixing the internet, how do we flip to a private by default or a secured and encrypted by default when you have uh, corporate interests or even state interests that go against it? I think the biggest barrier to people using privacy centric tools is they are not built for user experience. Yeah. They're built for privacy. And that's where when you look at things like PGP email, if anyone has ever tried to go through and set up PGP encryption when you know everyone's trying to figure out how to lock down their emails, it requires step-by-step guides to make sure that you know how to do it piece by piece by piece depending on the tool that you're using, the computer that you're using, the email client that you're using. And that's a real turnoff. You really have to be committed to privacy to make that happen. On the flip side, if you look at something like Signal or WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, it's so streamlined into how we already use the internet that no one thinks about it and they Mm -hmm. just appreciate it. And I think whoever's designing tools (laughs) needs to put that at the heart of it. How do you make it user-friendly? Then there's no difference. There's no difference between using iMessage, text message, WhatsApp, Signal, other than from a user experience perspective, other than the database ones you can use on your computer as well, as opposed to SMS, which is only on your phone, which makes iMessage more popular than SMS texting for people. And the difference between any of those and Signal is really, can you get graphics into them? Like, how quickly do they integrate across devices? And The and GIF library. Exactly. How, how big is the GIF library that yeah. you can share? Uh, but as long as it's a seamless experience for people, it's not that hard. The trick is... Building secure tools to be user-friendly is a little bit harder. And so I think really to make that happen, where that is at the heart of it, people need to be asking for it. People need to be messaging. Pushing companies. to to actually build tools to say, is this end-to-end encrypted? That's the number one thing we need, end-to-end encryption. If it's end-to-end encrypted, you're okay. Like that's pretty much the number one thing you should be asking for. Assuming you have a good password as well. If anyone listening does not have a password on your device and is using the same password across multiple things, please change it. Get a password manager. Password managers are great. Yeah. You never need to remember a password again. Just yeah. one to get into it. And, and you don't have to type it, it in. And no, I, I honestly, I got I. So uh, there were a few hack attempts on uh, on me from time to you know if you'd be, someone uh, there was a line that the only way to avoid you know hack attempts is not to be interesting on the internet as soon as you go on the internet you try to do something people will come for you but i adopted the password manager and it has changed my internet life yeah it is fantastic it makes everything easier and you're way more secure your information is less vulnerable it the one of the biggest breaches that we see when people talk about you know x number of emails were compromised on this service it's usually because a really old list of passwords was found somewhere and purchased or shared on the dark web mm-hmm. and 
people have used that password across so many other devices. That and never changed it. They never changed it. Yeah. So it's not that they hacked your Apple password or your Google password. It's that you used that password on some random application you signed up for once six years ago, forgot about, and they shut down and that database got made public. And if you had different passwords on all your devices, the most anyone could compromise is one account. Right. And so there are a lot of things when it comes to privacy around government policies, um, including, I will add, making political parties protect our data, which yes. is a rant we didn't really go down. Um, there are also a lot of things around corporations, but there's there's a lot of things we can do ourselves that actually aren't that hard that will make us a lot safer from things like data breaches, things like hack attempts uh, that go a long way to making sure that even if you're breached, the the fallout is minimal. Yeah. Or as minimal as can be. Yeah. You can contain it. Yeah. Well, okay, so there, you know, we like to provide listeners with some tools and tips, which I think we've done. So we're closing in on time, but I want to do a three-minute bonus round on streaming services. Okay. Because streaming services were meant to be better than cable. They were meant to replace cable. Uh, your one-stop shop for all of the television and film that you'd like to binge. I am a binger. I need a lot, as an introvert, I need a lot of downtime. I'll sometimes spend days in my apartment binging things. Uh, if I'm out at a hotel, I will hide in my hotel, you know, get food delivered and watch. Um, but it's restorative. It's, it is restorative for introverts. To, that's how, you know, that's how some of us come back to life. Uh, but it's starting to look an awful lot like cable again. I, I, sign, I have all of the streaming services. Uh, I have five of them, and, or four of them. And uh, it's four different bills. It looks a lot like cable. It feels a lot like cable. Uh, is this another broken promise of the internet? Um, I think that it has nothing to do with the internet is the short version. Uh, when you're looking at all the streaming services, you know, Disney Plus just launched. Oh, like I this know. huge catalog. Don't I know it. I'm very certain you're going to be binging all the Star Wars Have all been. weekend already. Been. Yeah. Um, and Marvel. But, but when you look at all of the streaming services, that content was already owned by someone and hard to access beforehand. Disney being the greatest culprit of that. Disney locked down its own catalog and wouldn't let you buy it. The vault, Even right? if you wanted to, it was in the vault. And now people have access to that content. When you compare the streaming services we have now to what cable looked like 20 years ago, you can pick and choose the shows you want when you want them, on the device you want them, in the place you want to watch them. You don't have to be in your house attached to your wall. You can go to a hotel room and watch it from there. So there's a ton of flexibility in that. Uh, you don't have to have the basic package and then the second package before you can unlock the third and fourth tiers of packages. Unless you unless you are using Crave. Unless you're using Crave. Which is, of course, become a train wreck because of, uh, naturally. Because they are actually treating it exactly like yeah. cable. And the reason that people turned to the internet and started cutting the cord is because it was presenting content in the fashion they wanted it. They wanted it on demand, where they were, when they wanted it. And that's what all those streaming services are doing. The issue with what content's available where, how many packages you have, is not related to the internet. It's related to rights holders and how in content's made available right. and all of the licensing agreements that existed on cable as well. Uh, I think... The perks to the streaming services, which I also like watching content on demand, uh, it makes it a lot easier to watch content that you can't find otherwise. Right. Uh, so if you're waiting you for TV, legally. you can't find legally. Yeah. And and personally, I want to make sure that someone gets paid for yeah. the content that I'm watching. And it's really frustrating when you go out of your way to try and find it on five platforms yeah. and you're like, I just want to buy it. That Where is do me. I pay I want for to it? pay. Please take my I money. 
take my money. Because people uh, will steal it if not, right? I mean, people it, it, at some point people are going to say, well, I'm just going to go and take it then. Yeah, but we've seen with the streaming services that piracy is dramatically decreasing yeah. because the reason people were pirating content in the first place is because they couldn't find it. Wait a second. Are you telling me that the, the response to piracy isn't to criminalize individuals who are suffering from manufactured desires, but rather to allow the marketplace to function in a way that responds to consumer demand? What are you, a communist? <laughs> you're the one who started with capitalism being the problem with society and the, the internet. always, but uh, yes. But I think that when you're looking at all of those streaming services and what they provide, on the face of it, it's just an extension of who owns what and them trying to make sure they're profiting from it. It's a it. copyright problem. It's a copyright problem. Right. Um, and I think the bigger issue that we're looking at in Canada, particularly from a policy perspective, is a lot of the proposals that are being floated around trying to impose broadcasting CanCon requirements onto the internet. Yes. Um, and I think that's where, yes. if you Isn't want to talk about it starting to look like cable, there are proposals to literally take all of the regulations around cable and force it onto the internet. Yeah, and it Lord. feels so backwards. Like the reason people turn to the internet is because it wasn't cable. And that's nothing against Canadian content and Canadian cultural products. Some I think those good. are great. Uh, and they can and should be able to thrive. But when you look at the way that the broadcasting system was built to protect the Canadian cultural industries, it was under this assumption that we were under attack from the States. Yes. When you look at something like Schitt's Creek, yeah. which has gone bananas in the States, I think we need to take a little bit of pride in our content and our cultural products and believe they can survive on a global stage. Yeah, if they're um, good. And I think they can be. Yeah, they can And be. I think a lot of them are. And I think the other piece is people don't know it's Canadian. And so there's this idea, which is a compliment. That, which is which is <laughs> a compliment when you when you grew up in the era of people being so tired of listening to Brian Adams because of the CanCon regulations on the radio. Canadian content's great. We have brilliant people yeah. here, and trying to force those regulations onto services that are global in nature, I think will do two things. If you look at trying to force all of the platforms to prioritize search results, let's say for Canadian content. So if you want to make sure that in Canada, when you search for something, the first things you're seeing are Canadian, that means that the first thing that Americans search for is American. Yes. And the first thing that Europeans search for is European. And so our content actually doesn't have a chance to thrive globally. And I think on the flip side of it, if you take some of the proposals like requiring a company like Netflix to meet the same 30% Canadian content requirements in their catalog, which works when there's only 24 hours in a day of content that you can do, but doesn't necessarily work when you have a catalog of millions of yeah. different pieces of content. The idea behind that proposal is that it will increase investment in Canadian content because Netflix will be forced to create more Canadian content. I don't know this. I haven't spoken with them. But Netflix is a profit-driven company. They will create the content they think is going to be popular. Mm -hmm. And after that, what they're more likely to do is drop some of their international catalog to make sure that they just meet the ratio. Yeah, There's no mandate. And the stuff's going to get content. buried in the service. You're never going to see it anyway. Or yeah, or they'll buy up a bunch of really cheap existing Canadian content to put in the catalog to meet it, but that's not the intent. It's not going to produce new good. And it's well materials. intended, but it's not quite getting there. So I think it's a mixed bag, but it's not all lost yet. You and know, you should enjoy your Disney Plus and I, watch all the Star Wars I to recover. Ha I have watched, and it's it's been open. It's been up uh, a couple of days now, and I have watched uh, nine movies or something like that. But um, no judgment. I've been working diligently as well, no doubt. But we have a CBC president who I believe compared Netflix to the British Raj. So I don't have a ton of faith in the 
current direction of of our policy there, but perhaps it will get better someday. And if anyone wants um, to follow up, uh, I'm sure either Laura or myself would, would be happy to share some thoughts. Okay, well, on that note, we're out of time and then some, but thank you very much to Laura Tribe, the executive director of Open Media, for talking to me about whether or not we can fix the internet. I think we've decided the answer is maybe. We can. The answer is yes. I'm pretty sure I won. The <laughs> And uh, my thanks to Mira Ahmad, as always, and to each and every one of you for listening, and we'll see you again very soon. 